MechCast, Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple Mac news, hints, tips, and going-ons in the Apple community. How you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful day. Things are going pretty well here for me. Just sitting here uh, looking over the show notes, we got a few things to talk about of interest this week. We're going to get into uh, new payment methods for your iPhone and Apple Pay, or I guess really payment technologies. We're going to talk about uh, foldable devices. Apple is apparently looking into more foldable options. We've got uh, some new Apple TV content and Apple TV news to get into, and this week was a big week, apparently, for uh, AR, VR kind of news, and we have a lot of stuff related to that to, to discuss, and then uh, possible new HomePods are on the way. All of that happening in the Apple news this week, and then uh, we're going to get into even more Finder tips from our community. It's something we've been uh, covering over the last few episodes of the MapCast. I got some great additional ones. Keep them coming, folks, because this is awesome. And then I'm uh, going to talk about iCloud a little bit and iCloud Drive, and then um, how to uh, better take care of the battery in your Mac. And I guess also by proxy, also your iOS devices this week. And that should round out uh, the show. So should, should be a good episode this week. Before we do that, though, I would like to take a moment and thank one of my show sponsors, And that is Collide. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Clyde knows that end users are IT admins most significant untapped resource and the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues including instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. And those are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. And as someone who works in a company that uh, has to worry a lot about security and, and we do have locked down devices, I can tell you nothing is better than having more educated employees and having your employees work together with your IT admins to really solve a lot of these security problems. And Clyde helps with that. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days, no credit card required. Visit collide.com slash MacCast to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash MacCast and enter your email when prompted to receive your free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. Try it out at collide.com slash MacGuest. That's K 
O-L-I-D-E dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to Collide for their support of the show. It's looking like Apple's tap-to-pay technology may already be out in the wild, just not for the rest of us. You may remember that Apple announced their upcoming tap-to-pay feature back in February, I think it was. And this is a new feature that's going to allow people to use their iPhone to accept NFC tap-to-pay payments. So basically, you don't need a dedicated terminal. What you do is you just use your iPhone and the NFC built into your iPhone to take payments. And apparently, Apple is already using the system to take payments at their Apple Park Visitor Center. A video showed up this week showing off the technology. And I have to say, it looks pretty cool, pretty slick, as you might expect from Apple. You just kind of hold the devices together and take a payment. And that could be really handy, I think, for not only large businesses, but also just small businesses and maybe even personal transactions. Uh, It will supposedly work with any iPhone that is an iPhone XS or later. You just have to have that NFC chip in there. And right now, unfortunately, it's not available to us consumers, but it will be available for businesses later this year through Stripe or the uh, Aiden Adian point of sale commerce platforms. I guess that's a Dutch commerce platform. There are rumors that Apple is considering adding support for Apple Pay Cash in iOS 16, which would allow us to transfer money from one phone, one iPhone to another. And uh, that would be really, really cool. Just place your phone next to someone and you can uh, transfer a payment. Great way to handle like split bills and those sorts of things at restaurants. So we'll have to see if that's something Apple shows off at the upcoming Worldwide Developer Conference when they give us a preview of iOS 16. Um, Apple has also announced a new subscription feature for developers that will allow them to, under certain conditions with advanced user notice, increase the cost of a subscription without having to go through the agree to new price interface like they do today. Not so sure how I feel about this one. Currently, if uh, you have a subscription that you've paid for through your Apple account, uh, the developer must get you to explicitly agree to that price change and the cost of the subscription increases by going through the agree to new price interface. And if you don't agree, then basically it tells you, hey, we're going to cancel your uh, your subscription on your next renewal. Under this new program, apparently the developer can increase the price of the subscription and have it auto renew. They still have to inform you in advance, but they don't have to get that explicit consent. Uh, There are limits, so that helps a little bit. The price increase can't occur more than once per year and can't exceed uh, $5.50% of the subscription price or $50.50% of the annual subscription price. Uh, And it must be permissible by your local laws. So there are a few restrictions, but it is going to let developers kind of do that automatically. And while I'm very much in the camp of Apple doing things to help developers make more money and be more profitable so they can make us great apps, I also know that subscriptions is an area where some apps that are bad actors 
take advantage of customers and take advantage of programs. And so I could see this being abused if Apple's not keeping a really close watch on it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Um, but just be aware that now that if you do have a subscription app, uh, you might get notified in advance and then just automatically charged um, if you don't go in and physically cancel your subscription. So just something to be aware of, something new that Apple is doing with their subscription programs. And, you know, I know in our community, subscriptions and subscription-based apps are a little bit of a... Thing that you know some people worry about and are concerned about so i'd love to hear any thoughts you might have on this little change shoot me an email send me an audio comment maccast at gmail.com according to analyst ming chi kuo apple may be adding e-ink technologies to future devices he says that apple is looking into color e-ink display technology uh, likely for a secondary and probably like informational display on a device when it is in a folded state. So this is for, you know, the other rumor we've been hearing about is Apple looking into foldables and fold folding technology for future products. Uh, the use of the technology, of course, is not a certainty, nor is Apple actually bringing out a foldable device. But uh, there have been more and more rumors that Apple is looking at this technology. Most recently, you may remember, uh, there was discussion of a form factor for a 20-inch foldable, maybe in a MacBook or iPad-like design. This was coming from Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, and we've been hearing about foldable iPhones for a while, Ming-Chi Kuo. As a matter of fact, mentioned the possibility of a 9-inch foldable device uh, with a 2025 time frame for launch. That would be something that would kind of sit between, I guess, an iPhone and an iPad or be an iPhone and an iPad mini style device. Um, the, the use of e-ink technology is something I don't think we've seen in any other devices that I'm aware of, um, but it is a really cool technology and it's definitely a great uh, choice for something like a secondary display. So imagine this would be something that would sit on the outside of the device when it's folded to show maybe the time or notifications, things that don't have to update or refresh very frequently because that's the limitation of e-ink technology. But the benefit is, is that once that image is set, you just apply power, set the image, and then you don't have to apply addition, additional power to hold that image until uh, it needs to change again. So it would be great for battery life and in a device like a foldable iPhone or iPad. So that's really cool. Um, we haven't seen too many color ink displays. It's a little bit more challenging than uh, the traditional black and white ones like we're used to in, say, a Kindle. Um, but the technology is supposedly getting better and maybe something that uh, Apple can use in a future product. Meanwhile... Current iPhone sales in the U.S. are looking pretty good, at least according to recent numbers from Canalis. They estimate that the U.S. in the U.S., Apple shipped 20 million iPhones in the first quarter of 2022. That is up 20% from the 17 million they shipped in the same quarter last year. They also predict that Apple's U.S. smartphone market share is up from 45% to 51% in the first quarter of 2022. So Apple having more than 50% of the U.S. smartphone market. And they attribute all of that to the popularity of the iPhone 13 models 
And to me, somewhat surprisingly, because we had heard that these devices weren't selling that well, they say the release of the updated 5G iPhone SE has been contributing to that growth. And I think that makes sense to me because there are many people out there looking for a more affordable device, want to do an upgrade and want to get into 5G. They don't have a 5G device yet. And the iPhone SE is the perfect model for that. And we've even heard from many of you in our community who are SE fans and just love that phone and love that form factor. So hopefully Apple keeps it in the lineup and keeps, you know, updating it uh, for the foreseeable future. And with numbers like this, uh, that may be looking a little bit more possible. In advance of the Cannes Film Festival, Deadline is reporting that Apple has picked up the exclusive worldwide streaming film rights to one of the films that's garnering a lot of buzz. It's a sci-fi romance drama called Fingernails. How's that for a genre? It's kind of a mix-up of a, a number of different genres, I guess. The basis of the story is that in the future, there are these institute, institutes that have been set up to help couples succeed in marriage. And because that's because testing has been developed that can measure whether or not married couples are truly in love. The film will star Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. Apple also announced a new kids series coming to Apple TV Plus this week, Eva the Owlet. The show is based on a popular scholastic book series called Owl Diaries, written by award-winning author Rebecca Elliott. According to Apple, Eva the Owlet stars Eva, a creative cheeky owl who lives next door to her best friend Lucy in the woodland world of Tree Toppington. With big ideas and even bigger personality, Eva goes on high-flying adventures expressing herself in her journal along the way. So if you have kids, that might be a great new show on Apple TV Plus uh, for them to check out. And Apple TV Plus shows do continue to show up in the JustWatch.com list of weekly top streaming shows. They do a top 10 list every week, and Apple's shows are showing up more and more in that list, which is great for the service. Again, I've talked about it. I think there is a ton of high-quality shows on Apple TV Plus. And as a matter of fact, I think we talked about last week that, you know, Netflix is starting to struggle a little bit with Disney Plus. And uh, surprisingly to a lot of people, Apple TV Plus kind of taking some share. And I think all this buzz and uh, these lists are doing a lot to help Apple with that. This week, the Essex Serpent and Servants made the list, but really just barely. They're right there at the bottom, coming in number 9 and 10, respectively, but they still are on the list. And, you know, Severance has been hugely popular, gotten a lot of buzz. I haven't heard too much about Essex Serpent yet, so if you've had a chance to uh, get into it, to check it out, the I tell you the trailers looked interesting to me um tom hiddleston being in it is also something that interests me so uh if it's a good show let us know about it let the community know about it if you're enjoying it so shoot me an email send me an audio comment maccast at gmail.com and if you just want to talk about apple tv plus in general and what you think of the service and the direction apple is moving it in love to hear those opinions as well and if you're looking to get a deal on apple tv plus and a few other of Apple's services and subscriptions, 
and you're a Costco member, you are in luck. Apparently on their site, you can save about five bucks a year on an Apple TV Plus subscription, getting it for US $44.99 versus the usual $49.99 yearly price. They also have the same deal for an Apple Arcade subscription. And uh, the really big deal, though, is Apple News Plus. You can get $30 off a yearly subscription to Apple News Plus on Costco, getting it at about 90 bucks a year versus the roughly $120 a year normal price. And you'll find the subscription deals there under Apple Movie Tickets and Streaming in that category. So category is a little off, but if you want to get a deal, you can check that out there. Now, if you do want access to all of Apple's services, then the Apple One bundles that Apple sells may still be a better deal. But if you're looking to save on a single service, then Costco has you covered. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there are a lot more details this week about Apple's AR VR headset project. A lot of this is coming from the site, the information. They had a pretty detailed report this week. And in that, they say that way back in 2016, Apple's engineers and team cobbled together kind of a prototype to give a demo to Apple's board of directors. They said the system was put together with existing headsets like the HTC Vibe and actually used a modified version of Windows to try and gain support for the project internally at Apple. As we know now from a lot of the rumors, the project did come to fruition, but it has been plagued by a bunch of technical delays and challenges. Battery has been a huge issue. We've talked about that a little bit for the team. There's also just the weight factor and the design and the form factor. Another apparent challenge is that the team has been working in Sunnyvale away from Apple's main campus. And apparently, while they have internal support from the board and from executives, they don't have a lot of day-to-day hands-on feedback and information. And apparently, they've been having a hard time getting support from other departments within within Apple. Uh, Probably things like COVID haven't helped too much. And the fact that teams are separated, but there is still a large focus on iPhone and iPad. And of course, Mac was big this year. So a lot of those technologies taking uh, time away and not making available internal services to the AR VR headset team. The piece also claims that while Tim Cook himself is very supportive of the project, he hasn't been really actively involved, not in the way, say, Steve Jobs would have been back in the day for, you know, some of these experimental projects. They say he rarely visits the actual offices of the teams, and that has been a problem as well. There also has supposedly been some pushback from Johnny Ive, or was some pushback from Johnny Ive. Uh, He has been a blocker when the VR team lead Mike Rockwell was looking for additional support from other teams within Apple. He was critical of the practical uses of the technology, and this was more when they were looking at VR versus AR, claiming it was unlikely that consumers would want to hear, would want to wear headsets for extended periods of time. Now, that supposedly led to the team looking more and more at AR technology and more mixed reality. Um, but a weird part of this is they mentioned that One of the outcomes of that whole kind of conversation was that Apple may be planning to put a screen on the outside of the headset to to display video images of eyes and facial expressions of the person wearing the headset 
so that other people in the room can see that. So feels a little bit creepy to me. I don't know. Maybe maybe Apple can pull it off. Maybe it'll be a whole cute memoji sort of thing and it's not weird, but that sounded weird to me. Never uh, thought about doing that in an augmented reality headset. Uh, but hey, <laughs> we'll have to see if Apple does pull that off. Uh, there have been additional reports that Johnny has continued to be involved with the product's design as an external consultant, even after leaving Apple. Uh, so, hey, we may still have a Johnny Ive designed product or at least something heavily influenced by Johnny Ive. And of course, batteries have been a big challenge. They're talking about different ways of handling that. Uh, even the fact that Apple's team considered doing removable batteries at one point, but those supposedly have been scrapped. And then after this report came out later in the week, we started to hear reports from other sources, uh, including Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg, who says that now the project is actually in an advanced stage and that a public product launch is quote-unquote imminent. Gurman said that Apple's board of directors recently saw a new demo of the AR VR headset that would be coming out soon. He says that development on the headset's operating system, nicknamed Reality OS or ROS, have been ramped up. And we recently heard that the device was being targeted for a 2023 release, but German now claims that we could see it come within the next several months. The first version of the headset is expected to be pricey. We've seen predictions with pricing ranging from at least $1,000 US, but it's looking more and more likely it's going to come in at that $3,000 range. So this is going to be, at least in its first iteration, a very high-end product. That's because it's got a lot of technology built in there, if rumors are to be believed. We've been hearing two 4K micro LED displays. I think at one point there was rumors that it might be 8K displays, up to 15 different camera modules, a Apple-designed processor based on M1 technology, eye tracking, hand gesture support, support, spatial audio, and more. All of these things are supposedly packed into this headset. So that all leading up to the price, probably a lot of the delays as well, especially with component shortages. The headset is expected to be a full standalone device. At one point, there were a lot of rumors that it might be tethered as an accessory to the iPhone, but it is going to be standalone. And oddly, according to the report, Apple is not focusing on gaming as a core application for the technology. So it's definitely going to be for other use cases. It'll be interesting to see how Apple presents that. They didn't rule out that, you know, gaming wasn't going to be there at all, just that it wasn't a core focus of this version of the product. And Long-term, Apple's goal is supposedly to get away from a big, bulky you know, AR, VR headset, move on to something lightweight, more of an augmented reality glasses kind of product. But that is uh, a lot further out just because of the technology. Uh, some, do think, some people do think that Apple could possibly be wanting to make an announcement of the product at Worldwide Developer Conference coming up here in June. That would be really nice, especially for developers, so they could get developing software and applications for the new product. But personally, I don't think that's very likely. It just doesn't feel like something Apple would announce 
at a worldwide developer conference. I would imagine we're going to see a lot of AR kit kind of technologies announced with the operating system and the developer tools. There'll probably be an expansion of that technology hinting at development for this upcoming product. That would be my prediction, but we'll have to wait and see. Worldwide Developer Conference is right around the corner, and we are expecting a lot of great things coming out from there. But overall, AR VR headset uh, is looking like it's going to become a reality sometime soon, maybe if not this year, maybe early next year. So if that's a product you're excited about, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think Apple is going to do? And what what I'm really curious about is what we would like to see as applications of the technology. I know a common one people talk about is the ability to overlay information for, say, doing maps or walking directions, those sorts of things. So as you're walking around, I'm, I'm curious to know what Apple might do in the home. What are the kind of home uses? Uh, I think a common one is like repair manuals or doing repairs and having an overlay of information for products and things like that, or maybe just teaching you to use a new product that you may have purchased. So there might be some commercial applications like that. Those are things that I'm thinking of, but gaming I think would be a big one. So it's surprising that Apple wouldn't focus on that a little bit, but maybe that really comes down to developers at some point and what developers develop for the technology. And maybe Apple's relying on them to kind of figure out those use cases. But I'll be curious to see what Apple's kind of built-in use cases are and what they try to sell it as uh, when it does come out. And if you have thoughts on that, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. And then finally, in the news for this week, some new news about the HomePod and a possible new HomePod coming this year. Ming-Chi Kuo said in a tweet that Apple would release a new version of the HomePod either in the fourth quarter of this year or the first quarter of 2023. He said, don't expect much in the way of a new hardware design, but failed to really comment on any features or what the product might look like. We have been hearing some rumors from sources like Bloomberg's Mark Gurman that Apple has been exploring other HomePod options. I think we talked last week about the possibility of kind of a convergence product, uh, merging an Apple TV, a HomePod, and a FaceTime camera system into kind of a higher-end product. Uh, German also mentioned, I think, the possibility of a new HomePod that would be bigger than the HomePod Mini, but smaller than the original HomePod, come in at a little bit more affordable price point than the original HomePod. And I think that is probably what Ming-Chi Kuo is referencing, the idea of a little bit higher end, maybe in that $150, $200 price range of a HomePod. And that could just be kind of a scaled down original HomePod, right, with maybe fewer speakers uh, and um, different technologies in there. So that would be very interesting and I think a great price point. A lot of people would like to see, I think, a a a bigger version. I almost said grown-up version of the HomePod Mini, but basically just that product that sits between the HomePod Mini and the HomePod. I know I would like that. I love the HomePod Mini, but I have a few larger rooms and I'd like something that could fill the space a little bit more. The HomePod Mini does good, um, but in larger spaces, it kind of falls short and you have to kind of buy a few of them, I think, to really fill a space. So would love to see Apple do something a little bit more with the HomePod and expand that line 
I think they're in a better place to do it now that the Mini has become a pretty popular product. And if they can get that price right in the right range, I think a little bit larger HomePod could do very, very well. We also heard more this week about a possible updated 27-inch Apple display. Display analyst Ross Young claims that Apple is still working on a mini LED version of the 27-inch Apple Studio display, but notes that according to his recent supply chain checks, that release has been delayed until October. I think Apple originally wanted to have that display be mini LED when it originally launched it, but it just didn't work out. And so we could see an upgrade to that product this year. It feels a little bit soon to me, especially if you just bought a new 27-inch Apple Studio display. I would have to imagine that maybe it could be like an option, almost like the upgraded display glass where you could have the mini LED technology with the dimming zones and stuff like that, but it might cost a little bit more. So maybe that's the way that Apple handles that, but we are having rumors that Apple will do an update possibly in the fall. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is Simply Safe. I think you know that I love the break-in protection that my Simply Safe home security systems give me, but it's not always outside forces that you need Simply Safe's protection from. This is Terry's story, a Simply Safe customer. Terry was away for the weekend for her daughter's wedding. The morning of the big day, she got a call from Simply Safe's 24-7 professional monitoring center. They let her know that her system had detected water in her basement. In moments like this, time is critical because every inch of flooding can cause more than $25,000 in damages. And thankfully, Simply Safe had detected the water just moments after the leaking had started. And after talking to Simply Safe, Terry called a neighbor who quickly turned the water in her home off before the flooding got bad. Protecting against floods is just one of the reasons more than 4 million people trust their home protection to Simply Safe. With a comprehensive Simply Safe system and 24 7 professional monitoring, you can have someone always looking out for you, just like Terry. Plans cost under $1 a day with no long term contracts or hidden fees ever. And another thing I love about Simply Safe is the expandability and the flexibility. For me, that's one of the things that makes this system great. Now, I don't have a basement, but I do have a pretty large yard, so the ability to easily add additional wireless outdoor cameras to the system makes it perfect for my needs, and you really can customize it for your needs. For me, it lets me keep an eye on my property even when I'm not at home. And even if mostly all I see is the rabbits and squirrels running around the yard, you can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash MacGast. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash MacGast. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash MacGast. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. Have I mentioned recently how amazing this community is? A couple episodes ago, I gave just a few little tips for the finder, some things that I could think of. And uh, then I threw it out to the community and said, hey, do you have some tips for using your Mac, using the finder? And you have responded in droves. We covered some additional tips on the last episode of the MacCast. And 
This week, we have even more from our community. So keep them coming, folks. This is really, really cool. I can't believe I even forgot some of these. But uh, Allie came this week and had, I think, three tips for us. One is one that I use all the time, and that's an easy way to close all of your Finder windows or even all of your app windows, open app windows, if you're in a specific app. This will work for a lot of apps. All you have to do is hold down the Option key when hovering over the window and go up to the little red stoplight button and click that with the Option key held, and that will close all of your Finder windows all at once. So if you've got a bunch of window clutter going on and you want to quickly get away from that, this is a handy tip for that. There's also a keyboard shortcut in the Finder, Command Option W will do the same thing. And again, really handy. I use it all the time. Another one that I use quite frequently too is the ability to expand your current window to fill your entire screen. Not go into full screen mode. That's kind of the default option. So if you go up to the little stoplight icons in the window and you click on the green icon, that will put your app or your window into full screen mode. I'm not a big user of full screen mode. I know a lot of people really like it and like to use, you know, de uh, desktops to switch between different apps and things like that. I more prefer to just have my window maximized to the entire screen. As a matter of fact, I do this with GarageBand when I record the podcast. And so there is a way to expand that window to take up the full screen real estate, but not go into full screen mode. And how you do that, again, is you simply hold down the option key while clicking that little green icon, and that will put it into uh, use all of your display, but not into full screen mode. So I find that one very, very handy as well. And then this one is more of a general Mac tip, but for those of us like myself who are getting a little bit older and, you know, maybe sometimes text is a little bit small or hard to see on the screen, uh, the Zoom feature that is built into the accessibility settings in Mac OS is super, super handy. So if you go into your system preferences, go to accessibility, and then click on the Zoom tab, you can check on the option for use scroll gesture with modifier keys to zoom. And I know it sounds uh, you know complicated, but it really isn't. Uh, the default key is the control key, but you can also change it to use the option key or the command key. And then once you have this setting turned on, you simply hold down that modifier key while scrolling, and that will allow you to zoom in and out of the screen. This is a really great tip for anybody who gives presentations as well. So if you're giving a um, presentation to a group and you need to focus in on a particular area of the screen, this can be really, really help, helpful to show detail and those sorts of things. I also use it occasionally to zoom in on photos. So sometimes somebody will want to uh, show a photo with maybe a hidden picture or something that's not quite obvious or you want to zoom in and get a little bit more detail. Obviously, it's not like enhancing anything, but it can be helpful for getting a little bit more uh, detail on a photo or something like that. So handy little tip. And um, by default, I think the default zoom style is full screen. So when you zoom in, the, the whole screen kind of zooms in. But there are a couple of other settings in there that you can tweak as well. Uh, you can put it into what's called split screen mode, where when you zoom, I think the zoom area comes up on the top of the screen. Or there's also picture in picture, which is more like a little loop that pops up, a little box 
and whatever you zoom in on comes in inside that little picture-in-picture box. So you can play around with those settings and kind of set it up the way that you like it. And Allie, those are some really, really great tips. This next one comes from John, and it is really handy if you want to get a text list of all the files in a folder. So maybe you're doing some organization, maybe you want to go through uh, folders and do some cleanup or something like that, and you want to have a nice handy list of everything that's in there. I know people sometimes use this too to kind of figure out uh, how to clean up files in a particular folder. You can kind of go through them in, in uh, an easy manner inside a text editor or something like that. So to do this, all you have to do is go into a folder, select all the files in that folder. You can do Command A to select all and then copy and then open up an app like TextEdit, a, a text editing app. And you need, to, you need to make sure it's in plain text mode. So in TextEdit, I think it normally opens up in rich text mode. You're going to want to go under the format menu and choose make plain text. And then once you have a plain text document, you can simply paste and that entire list of files will show up in your text document. So that can be really handy, especially if you want to send a list of files to somebody, something like that. So I know people uh, do that quite frequently, and that is a great tip. So thanks for sending that one in, John. And then while everybody was giving me these great tips, I thought of another handy one that I use that's pretty simple, but if you use the column view in the Finder, Oftentimes, you might have uh, file names or, or things that are too long to fit inside the column. And many of us know that you can uh, go over to the line, the divider in that column, and click and drag it to expand it, either open it more or collapse it more. Um, but a really handy tip, if you want to just fit the entire contents of the longest file name in that column is you can actually just double click on that divider line and it will automatically uh, automatically expand to fit the content in that column. So that's a handy little tip as well. And uh, so some great new finder tips. I'm sure there are still more out there. So we'll keep this going. If you If you have more cool finder tips or just more, I think, tips in general that you'd like to share, shoot us an email or even better yet, send us an audio comment, one or two minutes, and uh, share your tip with us, maccast at gmail.com. I want to bring up something that happened uh, about a week ago. Apple made a change to iCloud, and specifically, they shut down their iCloud documents and data service. And so if you already made the transition to iCloud Drive, you probably didn't notice this, but I have a feeling there are some out in our community who may still have, may still have been using iCloud documents and data and you may have gone on your Mac recently or are looking at your Mac now going hey yeah where are all my files and so if you've fallen into this camp don't worry your files are still safe and sound but Apple moved them over to iCloud Drive and if you haven't already enabled iCloud Drive you're probably not seeing your files Another good thing is that when they moved everything over, they didn't change your storage space, so you're not using any additional iCloud storage, so you don't have to worry about that as well. Um, but you will have to turn on iCloud Drive if you want to gain access back to your files that were in iCloud documents and data. So to do that uh, on your various devices, um, you do need to have 
iOS 8 or later on the Mac, you need to be running uh, Mac OS 10 Yosemite or later. And with PCs, you need to be on iCloud for Windows 7 or later. And then you can also uh, access your files, of course, on iCloud.com. But you do have to go in and enable iCloud Drive in each of those places. So on iPhone, iPad, or i or an iPod, you need to go into settings. You need to tap on your name. You need to tap on iCloud, and you need to turn on iCloud Drive. And then the way you access your files is through the Files app. So you can go into the Files app, and you should see all of your files there. On the Mac, you need to go into your System Preferences. You need to click on Apple ID. Um, if you're using Mac OS Mojave or earlier, uh, you don't you won't have the Apple ID. You just go into your iCloud settings, but basically select iCloud and then sign in with your Apple ID if you have to. Select iCloud Drive and make sure that is turned on. And then within the Finder, everything shows up under iCloud. And if you don't see that in the Finder in your sidebar, uh, you're going to want to go into your Finder preferences and customize the sidebar. And then you can just make sure that iCloud Drive uh, shows up over there and then everything will sync. And then on iCloud.com, uh, all you have to do is go to iCloud.com, select Pages, Numbers, Keynote, or iCloud Drive, and then you will have to select the Upgrade to iCloud Drive option and then you'll be able to find your files on iCloud.com in the iCloud Drive section. So wanted to share that tip with you just in case you had fallen uh, fallen prey to that and you had not updated to iCloud, doc, uh, iCloud Drive from iCloud Documents and Data Service. And then finally in the show for this week, I want to talk about uh, ways that you can better kind of protect or preserve the battery in your Macs and your iOS devices, basically give them the best chance for longevity. Uh, this is really for any device like your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, anything that has a lithium ion battery. It's generally recommended that for your battery's health that, and this is kind of my way of phrasing it, <laughs> that you you keep the ions moving. Basically avoid long periods of time where you have your battery in a static state. So either fully charged or completely empty, you want to avoid those two extremes. So optimally, I think a lot of battery experts or people who know this stuff, and I don't claim to be a battery expert, by the way, this is just tips and tricks that I've learned by proxy over the years. A lot of them say you want to kind of have your battery hover between about a 40% state and an 80% state. So kind of use your battery until it gets down to around 40%, maybe 30%. I think you can go a little bit lower than that. That seems a little bit high to me, but then plug it in at that point, let it charge back up to about 80% and then unplug it. And that will give you the most optimal or sort of best longevity for your battery. It, it gives it the best health. Now, I think in reality for most of us, this is not realistic to to do on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't think it's easily followed or easily done. But the reason I bring this up is because Rick emailed me this week asking if there was actually a way to set a setting that could prevent his MacBook Pro from ever charging above 80%. And he said, that's because I mostly, most of the time keep, keep it connected to power. 
And he even sent me a link to a project on GitHub uh, called BCLM, and it's a wrapper for setting the battery charge level maximum, BCLM, value in Apple's system management controller in the SMC. So on your Mac, there's a system management controller that handles a lot of like the battery stuff and power and a number of other things. So you may have heard me talk about ways to reset that because sometimes if you're having like wake from sleep problems or other battery kind of issues with your Mac, you'll want to reset your SMC. But you can use this little tool to go in and adjust the max charge level value, basically setting it to whatever you want. So you can say, hey, don't let my battery charge more than 80% using this tool. And that's cool, and it's an option, I guess, but I would be very careful using anything that goes in and modifies the intended behavior of your operating system, modifies it in a way that Apple didn't intend you to use it. So it's really a power user thing. I would not recommend it for the average user. I'm telling you about it because it is a thing that's out there. I have not personally used it. I actually wouldn't use it on my system, but please only do this if you understand what you're doing and it's something that you really want to do because you know, Apple could change things. I don't know what's going on in the underlying system. I'm assuming it's using the standard sort of commands because uh, there are uh, terminal commands you can use to uh, adjust settings in your system management controller. So it's probably okay. But again, be very careful when doing something like this. And if you are really worried about this, I think it's just the easier thing to do is build up good habits, right? Just unplug your Mac once in a while, let it use the battery, keep those ions moving and plug it back in when it gets down to a low percentage, but don't let it drain all the way to zero, right? So when you get the little pop-up warning that says, hey, your Mac is running low on battery, plug it back in. Same thing with your iOS devices and things like that. So don't keep them constantly plugged in. Don't keep them constantly unplugged and charging down to zero, something my daughters seem to do a lot. They like to run their iPhones at around... 10%. It drives me crazy. I, I would be worried all the time that I'd be running out of battery, but, uh, you know, and then they're rushing around to find a plug or plug in. Do your kids do this? <laughs> That's a thing. I don't know. Um, but I would worry about that. And then, you know, the other thing about this is that Apple in the more recent versions of the operating system actually has built in technology to kind of try to help with this. And so you don't even really have to worry about it that much if you're running Mac OS Big Sur or later. They've built in a mechanism that'll basically slow down or stop the charging when you get up to 80% and then charge it higher when it knows you're more likely to disconnect your Mac from power. So basically it monitors your charging behavior and then make sure that when you're, you go say in the morning to uh, unplug your device every day at 8am that it makes sure that by 8am it's charged up to hundred percent. But prior to that, it will only charge it up to 80% when it's plugged in. It's called optimized battery, optimized battery charging, and it's actually a setting. And Apple says this feature helps reduce wear on your battery and improve its lifespan by learning your daily charging routine. It delays charging the battery past 80% when it predicts that you'll be plugged in for an extended period of time and then aims to charge the battery before you unplug it. And you can change this option 
in the battery preferences. So to check the setting and see if you have it turned on, go into system preferences, go into battery, click on the battery tab, and then you can see if the set optimized battery charging is on or not, on or not, and then you can turn it on if you want to. So there you have it, you know, batteries, they do wear out. That's the other thing is like battery, depending upon how much you use your your battery, you could expect, I think, to get maybe three years, hopefully, of life out of your battery, maybe a little bit longer. I know people who have had batteries that have lasted five years, 10 years. So it really comes down to charge cycles and environment. And there are just a lot of factors that can impact your battery. But I feel like stressing over it and, and getting, you know, really, really worried about it. A lot of people like to install battery monitoring tools and really stress and worry about the health of your battery. Again, if you just make sure that you get into good habits and that you don't leave it charged, all plugged in all the time, and you don't let it drain down to zero all the time, and you're cycling that battery normally, uh, I think you're going to be just fine, especially with the systems and things that Apple have has built into their operating system. But that's just my opinion. If you have a different opinion, I'd love to hear from you. If you're doing something uh, to better preserve the health of your battery and you think that I'm wrong, that's great. I'd love to hear about it. Shoot me an email. Send me some audio feedback. Like I said, I'm not a battery expert, and there probably are some battery experts out there. And uh, we'll share uh, your, your tips and tricks and your additional information on future episodes of the MacCast. But with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281 221- 622-4269-281-MAC-IAM9, and you can leave a voicemail there. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast, or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But that will do it for now. Until next time, I'll talk to you all again real soon. Mm-hmm.